Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, I hope you found 1 Corinthians chapter 4 right now. We're going to read here in just a moment the last few verses of, of chapter 4. But before I do that, let me tell you about a historical hero of mine, a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you've been around Crosspoint for a while, you have probably heard me reference Bonhoeffer. He was a German theologian. He was a young man in the late 1920s and early 1930s. He was a very gifted, gifted theological mind. And he actually, because of his giftedness, was here in the United States from his native Germany studying. And also he had a job as a professor in a seminary here in the United States in the early 1930s. And he was part of the German confessional church. And he was a young, budding, uh, really worldwide known theologian and, uh, and Christian thinker. In the early part of the 1930s, he began to see the storm clouds rising in his native Germany with the rise of the Third Reich and Hitler. And he began, began to realize that the German church was capitulating, just absolutely laying down to and really paving the way for the rise of the Third Reich and their terrible atrocities. And so he made the calculated decision. He was here in the United States when that, when that was happening in the 1930s as a professor. He made the calculated decision to leave the safety of the United States and to go back to his native Germany in the early 1930s as the Third Reich was beginning to form. And he began an underground church, a faithful remnant of God's people, as the public church in Germany was beginning to fall and capitulate to the Third Reich. He organized an underground church in an underground seminary under the nose, really, of the Nazis in the Third Reich. He wrote many books and many writings that have become now uh, just hallmarks of Christian ethics and theology. And sometime in the late 1930s and early 1940s, after World War II had begun and, and it became known to the whole world who Hitler was and what his plan was, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and some of his brothers and ministry partners there in Germany during that time determined, after much prayer and much struggle, that the the most righteous thing that they could do in response to what Hitler was doing in Germany and around the world, and of course trying to kill Jewish people, was that the most righteous thing they could do was try and organize his assassination. And his works and his writings have changed Christian ethics in this last century. Well, his plot was discovered by the Germans, and he was thrown in prison in April of 1943. April of 1943. He spent two years in prison towards the end of World War II and wrote many books. He wrote most prominently uh, some letters from prison that we now know, wrote many letters that have become books. He wrote uh, a tremendous book called The Cost of Discipleship. And during his time, a little bit before prison, he wrote a book called Life Together about Christian community and fellowship. And then two years after his incarceration, just two weeks before the end of the end of World War II. Germany was crumbling at this time, falling. And just two weeks before the end of World War II, he was let out of his prison cell and hung in Germany. And then two weeks later, Germany officially fell and Dietrich Bonhoeffer died as a martyr in a German prison. 
During his time, right before prison, he wrote a little book called Life Together about authentic Christian community centered on the work of Christ. And he wrote these words, which are a beautiful uh, place setting for the things that we're going to think about today. He says, the more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. Well, today we're going to look at just this one thought about what it means to live life together for the gospel in a selfish, consumer-driven insecure world. So let's pray, and then I'll read, and let's ask God to stir our hearts with affection for the gospel in Jesus. Lord, thank you for your Bible. Thank you for your words. Thank you for the gathering of your people. Lord, I'm well aware in a crowd this size, there are certainly people in this room who know you as their Savior. They've repented of their sins. They've trusted in you for their salvation. They have been pardoned for their rebellion against the creator of the universe. And today they need to hear again about the goodness of Christ and his work, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Christians need to hear the gospel again. We need to be stirred with more affection for Jesus. We need to see ourselves and others through the lens of what Christ has done for us. So Lord, would you be so kind as to do that for my brothers and sisters in this room. But Lord, I also realize, as I said, with a crowd this this many people, there's certainly people in this room who are not yet believers in Jesus. Some may think they are, but they truly aren't, and others may be spiritually honest, and they realize that they're not, and for whatever reason, they're here today. Lord, as we talk about genuine Christian community, I pray that really what we would talk about is what you have done for us on the cross, and I pray that people in this room who have not yet turned from their sin and trusted in your work alone and have been brought back to life by your gospel, I pray today that you would cause them to be born again. I pray that you would save people. I pray, Lord, that every one of us would leave this room saying, surely the Lord has spoken to me, and that, as Reynolds prayed earlier, that you would stir our affections for Jesus so that we might see and savor him. And I pray it in Jesus' good and mighty name. Amen. Well, we're at the end of chapter 4, and remember what's happened in 1 Corinthians up to this point is Paul is writing a letter back to a church that he planted several years before. This was a gifted church. They had uh, lots of people who were very talented in their congregation. They began well. They understood the gospel at the beginning, but then their carnality and their consumerism and their selfishness was leading them into a certain spiritual arrogance whereby they were beginning to trust in themselves and their own wisdom more than they were trusting in the sufficiency of what Christ has done on the cross and his resurrection for Christians. And so they were beginning to veer off into all sorts of sin and all sorts of uh, self-sufficiency, which was spoiling their witness for the gospel. Paul has written to them to correct them of this error, to admonish them, to thank God for them. And then at the end of chapter 4, he sort of wraps up the beginning part of his letter with a defense of his ministry. Because remember, as we've mentioned in the last few weeks, one of the things that they were saying to him is that you can't truly be an apostle of Jesus because you are enduring all this hardship. And the people that we like to listen to are these people who are slick and seemingly blessed in this world. And Paul is defending the authenticity of his apostleship 
through the hardship that he's gone through. And really, in the verses that we went over last week, he really just sort of really lays it on him thick and says, hey, listen, um, you guys are acting like you have it all together, but this is what my life looks like. I mean, I'm beaten and downtrodden and continually undergoing trial for Christ. And there's a gap here between your comfort and my pain for the gospel. And then he picks up in the end here where we're going to read in verse 14 with a word of encouragement. And here's the overarching thought today that I want us to just grab a hold of is that Christ has saved us so that we would live together in gospel-centered, Christ-saturated, biblically-driven community so that we would love each other, one another, in such a way that our corporate lives as a church would display the gospel and in itself be an evangelistic aroma to the world around us that needs Jesus. So let's read in verse 14. I'll stop along the way. Paul writes, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. And what he's just written is in verses 8 through 13. Remember, he talked about, hey, you are, you're so wise and, and comfortable, and I'm, I'm in disrepute. I'm thirsty, hungry, buffeted, homeless. And look, look at your life compared to mine. You guys have it easy. I have it tough. And he wasn't writing that, he says, to make them ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Verse 15. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, verse 16, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy and my beloved and faithful, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. And so what Paul is saying is he is being, he's having the audacity to say, in all humility, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me. Live like me. Don't just do what I say, but, but actually mirror my way of life, my rugged, gritty example of what it means to be a Christian. Live like me. Now in verse 18 through 21, I'm going to read it. But most commentators think that this next section I'm going to read actually should be part of chapter 5. You realize that the chapters and verses that are in our Bible and our Old and New Testament were not originally put in there by the authors of the Old and New Testament. They were later editions by the English translators. And sometimes, in fact, most of the time they got the kind of break in thinking right, but sometimes they got it wrong. We're very thankful that they put those chapters and verses in there, but every now and again they made a mistake. And probably what's happening here in these next three verses that we'll read is he's setting them up for his absolute, you know, double-barrel shotgun blast that he's going to give them in chapter 5 because how they're allowing this guy to do this thing with his stepmom and nobody's correcting him. But let me read it anyway, and then we'll get back to verses 14 through 17. He says, Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will found, find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? I've got kind of three sort of things that I want to cover today as we look primarily at verses 14 through 17. I want us to just very quickly just reiterate the meaning of what Paul is saying to them in verses 14 through 17. Then I want us to look at two truths that I think apply to us 
And then I want to give us some observations on the challenges of us as a local body of believers, a young church growing in the Lord and in the gospel of doing life together, especially as we've moved into this new building much closer into the city and as we've grown with a lot of folks, the challenges that come with that, I want us to think about those things. I want to warn you that at the end of this, I'm not going to have any little steps. I'm just going to have some observations. I'm going to kind of present a problem for you and then I'm going to just kind of leave it unsolved because I don't quite have all of the answers of how a young church should grow together in the gospel. This is the first church I've ever pastored, and by God's grace, I hope it's the only church I ever pastor. I've said it many times before. I want to be in my late 70s or early 80s, and I want to spontaneously combust in my last sermon at Crosspoint. And then I want some young, young pastor on staff to come up mid-sermon, sweep up my ashes, dump it in the, the bin out back, and continue the sermon midway, and then call sinners to come to Christ at the end of it. Hallelujah. What a Savior. That's what I want to happen. But don't get too carried away. I've got a few more years. All right. I'll be, I'll be 40 this January, by the way. And I cannot wait to play that video of that football coach from Oklahoma State when he gets in that press conference, when he gets mad and he says, I'm a man, I'm 40 when he's deaf. Anyway, that's a joke for you. So here's the meaning of what Paul is saying in verses 14 through 17. He's really saying one thing, and I love Paul's, his bold humility here. He's saying, imitate me. Think how rare that is in our sort of insecure false, humble culture that we live in, in, in America. He's saying, be like me as I pursue Christ. That is something that should be, that line of thinking should be worked into the fabric of every New Testament church, even in our day. He says, follow my example of following Christ. And he uses this word that I love in verse 14. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you. Admonish you. We don't use that word too much in everyday speaking in English, do we? But that word admonish is so beautiful. In the original language, it, it literally means to rebuke and to correct and to instruct with earnestness. There's a lost art of admonishing. And I think of admonishing as, as serious humble, God-fearing, Christ-centered conversation between Christians who have developed trust because they share the unity of the bond of what Christ has done for them. There's this sort of trust between Christians and a sort of seriousness about them so that when they gather, they're not just talking about football or weather or good places to buy consignment sales and things like that. And they're not just talking about hunting and all of those things can be good to talk about. But they should just be sort of warm up to the, to the gravity and the seriousness and the, the joy and the, the meat of our life together, which is reminding one another of what Christ has done for us in the cross. We need each other. We need... We need to weekly, in fact, maybe even daily, be admonished by another brother or sister in Christ. And Paul says you should, you should admonish one another. Why are we so terrible at this? Have you ever thought about that? Probably not until this moment, but I'm going to help you think about this. Why are we so bad about 
admonishing. Why is most of American church culture so thin, so vapor thin, the mile wide and it's an inch deep? Why is that? I think part of the reason is, is, is that we are afraid if we're serious that someone will really kind of find out who we are. We're afraid maybe that someone will think we're judgmental if we, if we ask them questions about how they're doing with the Lord. We're, we're afraid, we're insecure we also have created a religious culture. Bonhoeffer in that same book, Life Together, says later on at the end of the book in a chapter on confession and true Christian community, he writes this, listen to this. He says, the pious fellowship, the pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is that we are sinners. I've said this many times, this quote from this 18th century commentator, his name is William Arnott. I don't have it on the screen, but I want to work this into the fabric of your life. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that one has sin and the other does not. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that the Christian has repented of his sin and has been forgiven of that sin, is now in the process of being made more and more like Christ. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not perfection and a train wreck, It's that the Christian is taking God's side against their sin and the unconverted non-Christian is taking their sin side against the dreaded God. Everybody in this room, whether you've been a Christian for six minutes or 70 years, is in process and is still battling with sin. To include me. There's this strange little thing that when a church starts to grow and, you know, it kind of has a little momentum and then the pastor goes from being the guy that 20 or 30 people know to several hundred people like, yo, he's the guy up there. Listen, my life has been marked by tremendous struggle and sin. There have been times in my life when I have almost ruined my life through lust and pursuit of ungodly things and And these things still exist in my life to some degree. And what I need is the gospel to come to bear on my life to remember that Christ alone has taken the punishment for my sin away and that He has given me His righteousness. He's given it to me. He's imputed it to me by His Holy Spirit. And now I live by the grace of Christ and what He has done for me. I need to hear that again and again and again. There is no autopilot for the Christian. And so we back up and we sort of pretend and we think... In fact, I think what we do is we, we expect people to be mature in Christ far too soon, don't we? There needs to be a culture in our church and in every New Testament church where it is okay to not be okay. You know? That's not an original thought with me. There's a pastor in Texas that Reynolds and I and the guys love to listen to, a young preacher by the name of Matt Chandler who says that a lot. We love listening to him because he holds out Christ so strongly. There's got to be a place where you can confess. Men, do you have have men, other men, that you can really be honest with? Do you keep people at bay with conversations about football and hunting? 
Who, who has the authority to admonish you? Who knows your life? Who knows your life? Who has the password to your computer? Who, do you leave your phone laying around? Or do you, are you always hiding it from your wife? Why? Is your life open? Who admonishes you? Is your, are you and your wife, are you connected in your heart? Is there openness between you? Are there conversations that you are having in your world, in your life, that if somebody in this room that you confess to be a brother of Christ with knew about, it would, it would mortify you? Here's the good news, friends, if that is the case for you, is the song that Laura Susan sang earlier, Come ye sinners. Come ye sinners. Don't wait until you get right. Come now today and trust in Christ. Confess it to a brother. And let the admonishing beauty of the gospel come alive in your heart. Why are you holding on to that thing? Why? Why are you cherishing that, that, that secrecy over the grace and the joy and the strength that is in Christ? Men, do you have other men who know your life and can admonish you? One of the great turns in my life is when that began to be the case for me. When there were brothers around me that, that I gave the permission to admonish me. Okay, so that's the meaning of Paul's line of thought here in verses 14 through 17. Follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me. Imitate me. Imitate me. Don't just listen to my sermon. Come alongside me. Go to the job site with me. Come to the tent-making shop with me as Paul was a tent-maker. Come, come alongside me. Let's go to lunch together. Let's get to know one another. Let's, let's be in relationship with one another. Follow me as I follow Christ. So there's two truths that I see here, and then we'll get into some observations, and then, then we'll be done. These two truths that I think come out of this line of thinking from Paul is that we must fight to actually live out the gospel in our lives. We must fight. We must roll up our sleeves and we must just reason and resolve to, as together, as a church community, press on one another gently to live out the gospel in our lives. We have created, for the most part, a religious culture in American church where, it's, where we judge you by whether or not you regularly show up. And if you regularly show up and you keep coming, then we just kind of assume, oh, well, he's a pretty good guy, tucks in his shirt, kind of knows the songs. He filled out a card once. We've got his email. He, yeah, all right. Good. You good, brother? You're good. All right. Good, good. He keeps, he's showing up. He's showing up pretty regular. Occasionally he helps move stuff around. You'll show up. And friends, that's a great thing to do, show up. But do you realize that's, that's not the meat of New Testament community together? We're going to talk about some observations of how we can do this. But we, we, we just have to realize this, that it's a fight in our culture to actually live out the gospel in our lives. Information does not equal sanctification. Just merely listening to sermons, merely coming to church, merely, merely reading a book, merely downloading some sermon from some famous preacher or whatever, which are all good things to do, does not equal the pursuit of Christ in our actual lives. The Corinthians were puffed up with the knowledge of what they thought was the gospel, but they were living lives that were contrary to the gospel. And we are a lot like that. We are Americans. Information is at our fingertips. Lots of information Lots of information always around us. It does not necessarily translate into actual Christ-likeness in our lives. We need to be aware of that, and we need to intentionally fight that as a culture. We need to ask ourselves questions. We need to invite people into relationship. You need to, if nobody knows you, if you've been coming around Crosspoint for a while and nobody knows who you are, 
That's maybe partly our fault, but it's partly your fault too, friend. Every relationship is a two-way street. We've got to know you. You've got to be known. It doesn't mean that you're going to be best friends with the leaders or whatever, but it means that you need to be known. If you're a believer of Jesus in here and you are not connected to a church, oh, I exhort you and I encourage you to get connected to a church that believes in Jesus, that preaches out of the Bible, and that is trying to live out these things together, whether, whether it is this church or some other church. We, it is absolutely necessary for you to do that. We must fight to actually live out the gospel in our lives. Secondly, we must give ourselves. We must intentionally give ourselves, sacrificially, intentionally, to, to one another in gospel-centered community. We must, we must do the hard work, the often awkward work of getting to know one another, of overcoming our insecurities, and making our hearts vulnerable to one another in gospel-centered community, which I believe is what a New Testament church should be. There's some challenges to this, no doubt. The pace of our lives. Come on, are we not the busiest people? I don't know that we really are busy, but we've, we've, we've filled our lives with gadgets and busyness. And a lot of times that's a diversion. You know, I noticed the other day I was with a group of people and just kind of that sort of latent uh, social subconscious anxiety like I just caught myself about every minute, maybe even more frequently than that. I'm just trying to make myself look better. But it was totally pathetic. I'm like, who? I was just checking my email on my phone. Like, because another 30 seconds has gone by. And God forbid I miss. God forbid I miss. Because there might be some Christian in, in Kuwait that wants to send me $1.3 million if I would just give them my, my bank account number. God forbid I missed that email. And so I'm just constantly looking at it. And what I think I'm doing is I'm medicating my soul against the insecurity of that moment. And I'm just trying to appear busy. Have you guys ever faked a phone call? <laughs> you're just in a group and it's just got, it just really feels like you're, hello? And you just kind of walk off and then you just get out of I've done it. We medicate ourselves with seeming busyness and importance. And, and friends, can we just confess that? And can we, can we admit that it cuts against our ability to just sort of sit still in a room with one another and say, how are you, brother? Because we're scared of what the answer might be. I'm nervous. And I don't know, bro. I'm nervous. I don't know what's going on. I don't know. I'm not. Come on. The pace of our lives kills us. Another challenge is our default consumerism. Boy, we've been taught from very early on to just look at every situation, every community, every store, every business, every church, every relationship through the lens of what we might get through it. And when we bring that default consumerism into the church, we bring the spirit of the Antichrist with us, not the spirit of Christ. It's the spirit of the world that comes into the church and says, what's in it for me? Do we need to make wise assessments as to whether or not a particular church is the best place for us? Well, of course, friends. I'm not saying check your brain at the door. But we walk into relationships, into marriages, into friendships, into churches, into schools, into everything with this just bent of consumerism. We need to realize that. We need to confess it. And we need to press through it so that we can give one another, give ourselves to one another. And finally, just the frailty of the fear of man. 
our hurts and insecurities. We esteem our past pains in church life greater than Christ's work. We esteem our past frailties, our past hurts, our past wounds greater than Christ's work. More on that later. Let me just ask you a question. What is the loudest thing about you in just the way you live your life as a Christian? What's the loudest thing about you? When people think about you, what do they think about? You know, I quote A.W. Tozer a lot, that pastor back in the 1940s, mid-1900s. He wrote this beautiful little book called The Knowledge of the Holy. It's a beautiful little book. And in that book, he begins it by saying that the most important thing about every person is what they think about when they think about God. I think that's true. The most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about what God has done for you and what you've done with that piece of information. Maybe the second most important thing about you is what other people think about when they think about you. I'm not, I'm not saying we should be driven by public opinion of us, but what, what's the loudest thing about your life? When people think about Brad, is it, oh, he's, he's busy. He's busy, man. He's busy. Or is it that you've been hurt, and so you stay on the fringes of Christian community, and maybe you're looking for a new church, or you're looking for a new circle of Christian friends, and the loudest subconscious message that you are giving off is keep your distance. Don't you dare hurt me. Don't you dare offend me because I've been hurt before. And it's like your red badge of courage that you wear. It's like a shield that you go into the fray of every new relationship. And your busyness or your importance or your social status, it's like a shield. It's like an insecure shield that we prop ourselves up on when we walk into every relationship with it holding up so that, so that God forbid somebody might see behind that thing and see the frailty of our real lives. What's the loudest thing about us? This is the loudest thing about you, the gospel. The fact that Christ and His grace has carried your sin away and has given you His righteousness and has now brought you back to life and has your eternity secure? I mean, what can this world do to you? What can these next 50 years do to you if your eternity is secure in Christ? As that quote from Peter Kreft that I've read often, if you could see your future in Christ with Him forever... And then come back to your present life and all its distress and all its battle with sin. Would you not return fearless and singing? Oh, come on. What's the loudest thing about us? The gospel or some social prop? Okay, final thoughts here. Some observations on the challenges of life together. Again, I'm not going to end this with any three-step deal on. This is what we need to do. Sign up for this group. We're going to have a sheet out at the information desk for all of you interested in blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Nothing against sign-up sheets. We do that every now and again here. But I want want the Holy Spirit to press on us so that we might repent and press into the gospel and the community that it forms. Some observations on the challenges of life together. We must... We must see one another through the lens of the gospel. We must put on gospel goggles as we see one another. We must look at each other not too high, 
and not too low. We must see other Christians in this church through the lens of what Christ has done for them and for us on the cross. And this should produce a deep and abiding humility in us as we engage one another in our disputes and in our sin and as we rub our crusty elbows against one another. This is what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10 and, and verse 14. I love this verse. Boy, this should be the heartbeat of a, of a humble, gracious, gospel-centered community that they would see each other this way. This is what the writer says about Jesus' work on the cross for Christians and how he saves them once and for all, but then the rest of their life as a process of sanctification. He says, For by a single offering he has perfected, That single offering is his work on the cross. So this is what Jesus does on the cross. He takes the punishment for our sin. He takes even our sin and he carries it away. God is righteous and just. Listen, friends, this is the gospel. Don't miss this. This is the gospel. Every person in this room, no matter whether you've grown up in a church or whether you've made an absolute mess of your life and you're a convicted felon or whether you're a precious little baby with two gorgeous parents, you're born a sinner. You're a rebel. You're a glory thief. Whether that is in crazy sin or whether that is in your own self-righteousness, we're born moralists. We're born self-righteous glory thieves, all of us. That's the clear witness of the Scripture. The Bible says that in response to that, before the foundations of the earth, God sent His Son Jesus in the flesh as the perfect God-man. Jesus has been tempted in every way as we are, had opportunities to steal glory and rebel against God like we did, but he did it without sin. He endured life in the flesh without sin. And then he willingly lays down his life on the cross as a wrath-absorbing sacrifice for the sin of all people that would trust in him, people that will repent, turn from their sin, and trust in Jesus. And then he rises victoriously over sin and death and rebellion, defeating all of its consequences and now invites all people to come and trust in him as the sole sacrifice, as the sole way back to God to bring us back to life from spiritual death. And to do that, you must trust in Christ. The biblical words are repent and believe, to turn from sin, to turn from trust in self and to trust in what Christ has done. You don't need to know anything about the Bible or church culture or Christianity other than that to be a Christian. Trust in Christ. Don't trust in yourself. Do you see what a scandalously good offer that is, friends? That it's not about what you do. It is about trusting in what Christ has already done. And you may say, I don't even think I can trust. Exactly. That's why it's such amazingly good news. That's why it is the gospel of the good news. Is because He, in His goodness, even gives you the gift of faith. When God moves upon a human heart and determines to save it, He gives you the very thing that He commands. Oh, that's so good. That's why Augustine, the early church father, he said, Lord... He said, give, he said, command what you will and give what you command. God commands you to come back to life so that you can trust in Him. And He gives you the life to do it. That's the gospel. And that should produce utter humility in all of us. And we should view one another in that way. I haven't even finished the verse. Back to Hebrews 10. For by a single offering, He has perfected. That's the gospel. That's how He does it. Through his death and resurrection on the cross, his perfect life, 
His perfect, beautiful sacrifice as an atoning, satisfying gift for God's justice for all time. And listen, here's the twist. For all time, He has perfected, for all time, past tense, completed, done, those who are, present tense, being sanctified. So if you're a Christian and you have trusted and believed in Jesus, you are becoming what you already are. That explains a thousand different troubles in the Christian life. It explains why Christians still battle with sin. Positionally, you are right in Christ, but practically in this life, we are still working out our sanctification in the gospel. And sanctification is just a 25-cent word for holiness, pursuit of becoming like Jesus. And so if we understand that, then you see what that does? It produces grace for ourselves, and it produces grace for other people. And it allows us to see one another through the lens of the gospel. Friends, Think about this when we judge one another or when we hold grudges against other Christians. Think about this now. Think about this image. Prophetically, the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, and then it's repeated in Peter, that Christ has carried our sins away. And so in the situation where you're dealing with another brother or sister in Christ, in Christian community, in New Testament church life, and you just can't get over some issue between you two, regardless of whether or not they have repented or whether, regardless of how they're acting, they're a confessing, believing Christian. Jesus has carried their sin away. Now, they may be making a mess of their lives right now and your relationship, but positionally in Christ, they are righteous just like you are, and Jesus has carried their sin away. And what we do when we just can't see one another with grace is we run to Jesus and we snatch that sin out of his hands. Of course, we can't do this, but this is what we're sort of metaphorically doing. We're snatching that sin out. So, no, 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 Jesus. This, this person, this little child of yours, he needs to deal with this one for a little bit longer. Think about that. When I was a little kid, I used to attach myself to certain items in our house. And my, my parents would occasionally throw things away. I remember my brother. I, had a, I have a big brother. He's three years older. Than me, by God's grace, even though he was a traditional big brother, punished me a lot when we grew up. One time he locked me in the bathroom for a whole weekend while my parents were gone. Anyway, uh, still getting over that one. Uh, but the Lord used him when he came to Christ to bring me to Christ uh, through his witness. But, uh, I, you know, I, I loved my big brother. I idolized him in a lot of ways. And he used to have this little shirt as a kid. We used to wear it a lot. You know, like we had three or four shirts. That's all we wore as little kids. And he had this shirt. It was just a little shirt. It had the number 16 on it. And that's just when I think of us as kids, I think of my brother wearing that little ratty hold-up shirt, little jersey, number 16 on it. One day my parents threw it away. You know, they were just moving on. I guess they weren't particularly generous. They didn't have a good will or something. I don't know. I could think about it. Why didn't you give it to somebody else? But anyway, they put it in the trash. And later on that evening, I snuck out to the trash can and got it and put it underneath my bed because I just wanted to, I, just, I don't, no, I'm attached to that thing. This is even a little bit more embarrassing, and I think I've told you this before, and I'm probably going to get some grief over this, but when I was a little boy, I used to love when I'd go places with my mom to hang on to her purse. <laughs> and like women do, she, <laughs> she got a new purse, you know, and she threw this old purse away. 
I wasn't having it, man. I snuck out to the trash can in the alley, and I got my mom's purse. I shouldn't be telling you this. This is going to... This is going to have a life of its own, and I put it underneath my bed. And for a long time, I had my mother's purse and my brother's little ratty little shirt stuffed underneath my bed. (laughs) Don't we do that with our own sin and the sin of others? We go to the trash can of grace. Psalm 103 says that he's removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. And we dig in the refuse of forgiven sin and we carry it back and we stuff it under our bed for use when we need it. Oh, that we would be people who don't rummage through spiritual trash cans but see one another through the lens of the gospel. Three more very quickly. My observation here about our church and many others is that connection and relationship are easy for some and hard for others. Why is this? I know we're different personalities. You know what's weird? These military couples, it's, it's just so, they're just hardy people, you know, I think in a time of war and when they're getting transferred from place to place, they just have this relational grittiness to them. And it's weird how these re- military couples will come and they'll just, I mean, it's like they're just here and they'll be here for a month or two and we can't imagine. We know everything about them. You know, they're part of life point groups, they're helping, they're coming all the time, they're signing up for stuff, and they're just, they're just involved. And then there's other folks that just don't, you know, it's not just military, I'm sure we have different personalities in every little subculture, but, but I'm just always impressed with just people who just come and break through insecurities, and they just jump in and say, hey, I'm here. But I realize that some of us, God has given a personality where it's just difficult for us to, to break into relationships. Maybe we've had some past church pain or failure issue where we were hurt deeply. Again, I ask you, what's the loudest thing about you? That past hurt, that present insecurity, or the gospel? And the deep abiding need of every human, the deep, every human soul has to connect with other Christians and to grow in Christ together. Some people connect easily. Some people it's hard. Listen, if it's hard for you, oh, I have great, great understanding and empathy and grace for you. Can, you. can you do something? Can you consciously confess that? Can you think deeply about what might be the underlying cause of that in your life? And can you maybe repent of that, confess that to a trusted brother? And then think about ways that you might practically give yourself in relationship to this church or a smaller group of Christians. Can you, can you do that? Can you just think, I'm not going to go too deeply into that because I don't want to answer that question for you. Can you do that? Look, if it's easy for you to connect, can you realize that by God's grace he's given you that social ability, would you use it for something other than just your own satisfaction? If you've been here at this church for a while, would you just, would you just put your head on a swivel and would you, would you seek out people that, not that you're already in relationship with, but people who who look like they have difficulty connecting. And can we just have this beautiful sort of organic, unorganized love among us to where we go after one another in gentleness and grace? Third observation, our individual default is the comfortable and familiar, is it not? Our individual default is the comfortable and familiar. 
we unintentionally, and I don't think anybody sins intentionally in this way, but we just float to people that we already know. I don't think we're being intentionally cliquish. In fact, I think actually at Crosspoint we do a pretty good job of this over and over and over again. I hear people say, man, that was so friendly. People just came up to me and talked. But I realize that there are people always that fall through the cracks. And let's just confess that we individually have as a default that we will go towards what is comfortable and familiar. Can we get outside of that? And then fourthly, final observation is we spend most of our energy on the trellis rather than the vine. What do I mean by that? We spend most of our energy on the trellis rather than the vine. Let me explain that. There's this book that was published about a year ago called The Trellis and the Vine that uh, me and the guys on the staff team have been reading through and looking at. And it was this book about ministry and church culture and how uh, in every church there's work that is trellis work and vine work. And what a trellis is, if, if you don't know, a trellis is like one of those things that you would put in your garden that you'd stick in your garden like a wood frame that then the vine grows up and, and it becomes a stabilizing influence for the vine, the plant, to grow up and brace itself again. And the analogy that these authors make is that much of church culture in modern-day church life focuses lots of energy on trellis work, which is an analogy for programs and structure and sort of organized church events that require leadership to sort of supervise and and, and, and advertise and oversee and, and pump energy into. And those are good things to do. They're, they're like committees. They're people that maybe look over the finances of the church or people that organize to sign up for the nursery or people that organize some other little thing in the church that is a very important thing to do. We're not disparaging kind of the programmatic trellis view of church life. But the point that the authors are making is, is that we spend an inordinate amount of time on that type of stuff, all the while sort of the real work of gospel life together is the vine. It's the, the actual growth of the gospel in our lives. And as a church, we sort of default to programs. Sign up for this. Do this. Be part of this group. In fact, today we're going to train some LifePoint leaders. And I pray that that becomes fruitful and people sign up for groups. In January, we're starting a new semester of our small groups and we want you to connect that way we want you to come to events we want you to regularly gather we have some programs we want you to sign up for stuff but do you see that churches can sort of structure themselves to to death energy wise they can become people that kind of do all of the the ministry things really well all of the structure all of the meeting things real well the the things that we can sign up for really well, and all the while nobody really knows each other. And we come in and we do religious things, and we raise our hands at the proper time, and we can open our Bibles to the page, and we can say amen at the appropriate place, and we can get excited at the right moment in the song, and, and we can kind of look halfway decent, and we can not spill our coffee in the foyer, and we can pick up our kids, and, and then we can go back to our quiet lives of desperation or we can be people that confess confess our sin of separation our sin of consumerism our sin of insecurity and not wait on church structure to craft the ideal experience for us and we can just get to know somebody. I end with this picture. Something I've shared before. 
kind of a little acrostic or goofy little acronym, which you know I'm a little averse to. I sort of don't like these type of things, but I think this is helpful. Let me encourage everybody in this room to do three things. In the New Testament, we see three different types of relationships, not exclusively, but three different types of relationships. We see younger men in relationship with a mentor, Timothy and Paul. Timothy pursues Paul. Every person in this room needs somebody that just knows a little bit more about Christ than them that they can kind of go after. Pursue a Paul in your life. Somebody that's a little bit further down the road in Christ than you are. Do it. It's on you, young man. It's on you. It's on you, young lady. It's on you. Don't wait for it to come to you. Go after an older woman or an older man in this church. And don't sign up to be blood brothers and smother them, you know, and call them every five minutes and cause them to run away. Just say, hey, can we go to lunch? I've got a couple questions for you. How do you raise kids, man? I've got some three-year-olds. Eventually, those three-year-olds are going to be 15. And I just, you've got, you look like you've got some kids that kind of know halfway which way is up. Tell me what that's like. Let it be one or two lunches. Pursue a Paul. 18-year-old kid, talk to a guy in his late 20s that has a wife that's paying a bill, that's got an alarm clock and actually sets it. You know, don't be best friends with that guy. Just say, hey, man, what's it? Talk, speak to me a little bit. Talk to me. Ask him questions. Pursue a Paul. Be a Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas were good buddies. Barnabas' name is Greek for encouragement. Look for somebody outside of your social circle. Not the guy who looks like you, who lives in the neighborhood that you live in, who kind of does everything, who roots for the same two, team that you do. But look for somebody sort of outside of your social circle. Somebody down the row right now. Somebody on the other side of the sanctuary, somebody that maybe looks like they're, just go after somebody that looks like they're in your zone of life. And again, you don't have to be be best friends. Just get outside of yourself and get to know one another. Share emails. Call one another occasionally. Hey, bro, I'm praying for you. It doesn't have to be anything spectacular or over-spiritual. What's going on, bro? Is there anything I can pray for you about? Do you know the sweetness of those words for the human soul? The other day I saw two guys, an army guy. He, he just went up to another guy. What is anything? And they were over here kind of after service just praying. And then this guy came up to me, the guy who, who was the recipient of the question, and they're kind of on a Barnabas level relationally. And he just said, man, that was so good for me. This guy just came up. It wasn't complicated. You know, we didn't have to be best friends. We didn't have to wonder whether or not our, our wives will like each other. We just, we just, we just, he said, hey, man, how, how's it going? Let me pray for you. What's going on, bro? Yeah, let's shuck it down. Jesus, bless this brother. And then look to spend time with a Timothy. It's a third relationship. So pursue somebody that's over you. Again, just simple. One or two lunches. Befriend somebody that's on your level. Pursue a Paul. Be a Barnabas. Spend time with a Timothy. Somebody that's younger. Look at some young cat in here and say, hey, bro, how's it going, man? How's it going, bro? How you doing with the Internet? Huh? How's it going with your girl? You out of the house now? I know you got a lot of unsupervised time. Been there, bro. How's it going? And let the silence hang. <laughs> Can we pray about it, bro? 38-year-old mom. Look for a young, a young mom who's carrying around a little baby, still breastfeeding that little pup. Looks frazzled. She don't know which way's up, man. She could just use a, a sister in her late 30s that's got two or three kids that are out of diapers and just come along and say, hey, how you doing, sister? tough, isn't it? Husband leaves his underwear laying around. Yep. Uh-huh. Been there. Let's pray for one another. 
And you know what happens? And I end on this. I've said that four times, I know. Here's what happens. Is that a community, the heartbeat of a community, begins to be what Christ has done for them. And the most prominent thing, the loudest thing amongst the humble group of people who are viewing each other through the lens of gospel goggles with humility, understanding what Christ has done for them, treating one another with this type of raw, gritty, real display of grace. You know what happens? Is an aroma emanates. It rises from that place. And then God smiles on that little tribe of people. And in His providence and in His sovereign grace, He knows that sinners will come to trusting, believing faith in His work on the cross. And He sends people to that place. And they begin to need it because it's the need of every human soul. And people come to Christ. And evangelism happens simply by the way a church understands and treats one another in the gospel. Oh, it's beautiful, friends. It's beautiful. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer's quote becomes the heartbeat of our community. I'll read it again. The more genuine and deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede the more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and His work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. Christian, we need to repent of our insecurity, our busyness, our consumerism, and our default selfishness. As the band leads us in some response songs, can we do that? Can you look for a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy in your life today? And can you not wait on a phone call from Reynolds or a survey from Will Hawk or an email from Paul Fincher? Can you do it? Can you do it? I think you can. Unbeliever, person who's not yet a Christian, come to Jesus right now. Come, ye sinners. What are you waiting for? Trust in Jesus right now, even as I'm speaking to you. Make the decision to believe in Jesus right now. That's what it means to be a Christian. Not repeating a prayer, not raising your hand, not coming forward on an altar call. Those things can be helpful at times. But what it means to be a Christian is to respond in repentance and trust in Jesus. Do that right now. Do that. Come, ye sinners, to Jesus. He never rejects a sinner that comes to him. Come right now. Come. Come to Jesus. Now, Lord, as we respond now in worship and in communion for those of us that want to respond in that way and in prayer and in repentance and confession, now, Lord, I know I've talked for a while. I pray now that you'd settle our hearts in what, to what Christ has done. I pray that Crosspoint would be marked by a raw New Testament grittiness and absolute resolve to do real community together for the sake of the gospel. And I pray for people that are not yet believers in Jesus in this room to come to saving faith in Him because of Your good and gracious gift of repentance. Would You do that now, I pray, for Your glory and for the joy of Your people, I pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.